0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May thirty one. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre tyler host. Today, we'll be talking with Bill Emick and also Adam Steppen, authors of Leveling the Learning Curve, Creating a More Inclusive and Connected University. How are you doing today? Great. Thrilled to be here. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how did you get started on this project?
2: You want to go first, Adam? Go ahead. Okay. Well, I'll just, yeah, we're, we're, Bill and I uh, work at Columbia University uh, and uh, we are, actually have a third co-author who who couldn't join us today, uh, Suleiman Kachani, uh, and we're all we all work in different areas of digital education. And we've been working on a book project for a while. And then, of course, the COVID pandemic came along and suddenly gave uh, an increased focus and, and and importance to these issues. So we expanded our book to really be looking at digital education across a number of universities. And uh, we did 50 interviews with different vice provosts, uh, CEOs of ed tech companies, and also people from the area of development. And, uh, Bill, you might want to provide a little context of how this connects to our work at at Columbia.
1: Sure. Uh, Deidre, again, we're very appreciative of this opportunity. Uh, just to add a little bit to what Adam had to say about who we are, uh, I was the first person on either side of my family in history to graduate high school. So I was, uh, I was fortunate. I met great people who advised me along the way and ended up, after a a long journey at columbia university crazily enough my boss was adam's father uh who was one of the best bosses i ever had in my whole life and so from the very get-go uh coming from a poor family uneducated poor family my parents always said education education it's the only way And it is, and I've dedicated most of my life to both government and education. And as we were talking briefly before we started, we now have the technology whereby we can share quality education from the best universities in the world to virtually everyone in the world at a very low cost. And what I'm proudest of about this book is as Adam said, we've talked to 50 of the most uh, influential people in this field and they're doing it. They're doing it from places like Berkeley and uh, Michigan and Dartmouth and some of the best universities you can think of uh, are are sharing both in a a non-credit version, but also for credit. You can actually get an advanced degree in computer sciences from Georgia Tech, 100% online for a fraction of what it would cost you live. So I think this truly is a story of how to make the world a better place. And Adam deserves a lot of the credit for this book because he's the filmmaker, producer, cameraman, technician. He's the guy who, who's who been able to help me and, and Suleiman transfer our ideas into this virtual reality where they can be shared with everyone, everywhere.
0: Absolutely. Well, do you find that life has really changed after the pandemic for colleges and universities because of all the digital tools?
2: Most wow. definitely. Why don't you jump in, Adam, and then I'll no, add. I, I, yeah, I was, I was just going to say it's it's uh, definitely been a huge change. And for us, uh, it's actually the second big moment in the history of digital education where a really big thing change happened. The other one was about seven years ago when a lot of universities started sharing uh, things on these uh, sharing platforms and MOOCs, uh, edX, Coursera, these massive open online courses. And that kind of shook things around at universities and opened the door to a lot of this new types of sharing. And then things got a little quiet. Things didn't quite work out hundred percent the way people hoped and obviously, this pandemic was just a terrible, terrible thing in so many ways for so many people. But it did, I think, open the door to a lot of people seeing what was possible. And Bill can talk a bit about what it meant to teach during these times. So, I mean, literally
1: overnight, I uh, I teach a lot, and all of the, virtually all my colleagues at the places that stayed open shifted from fully live to fully online from from one course session to the next. And you know, you you'll hear and have heard, I'm sure, a lot about all the problems with it. But for me, I'm an optimist by nature. I was amazed at how well we were able to keep it going. Uh, and in fact, that I found some advantages to being online as opposed to being live. For example, I could see all my students with their names, you know, in a, in a big classroom, which is, you know, organized like a railroad car. If people sit in the back, it's hard to see them, much less develop a relationship. So there are a lot of things that are advantageous about it. But, but as Adam said, it, it really kickstarted this, this new way of, of teaching and learning because there was no other option. Now, as we come out the other end, some people are really running with it, going faster, doing more, reaching more people. But many places, including, I uh, sadly to say, a lot of uh, the schools at my mm-hmm. university, are just pulling back entirely and saying, "No, now that now that the pandemic is, you know, in decline, everything's live, online, in the class." no more remote education. So I'm hoping between Adam and and uh, our our co-author who's the vice provost of the university we can we can overcome this little blip and just keep going.
0: Well, I hope so. But what does the research show about good design? I be, because that's so important in teaching online and various modalities.
1: Let me say a little bit as the as the, the primary teacher of our group, and then Adam will talk about how all the great things he's been able to do to overcome it. The hardest point for me is where I think a lot of this, this digital education is going to happen, which is what, what I call hybrid, where I have people live in the room, and then I also have people who are, In virtual reality, not to mention sometimes looking at it as a asynchronously as as this uh, interview will be um, made available. And it's just hard. So, you know, we need better, more visible technology, bigger screens, screens closer, and we need more support. I've had a lot of practice, but a lot of my colleagues are like totally frozen in this new atmosphere. They need training. And I think we need more uh, what we call teaching assistants. So maybe one to monitor the live classroom and the other to manage the chat and make sure that people who are uh, in the virtual part of the class have equal participation. But that's just one view. Adam, why don't you talk about
2: some of the the broad issues? Well, I think the good news is we know so much more now than we did even five, 10 years ago, about how people learn and, you know, what we could do to build learning experiences around that. And I think the two of the biggest ideas that really are strong, and this goes from, you know, from K-12 through graduate school, is the idea of active learning, that students really, where they can grapple and they can do something with the knowledge actively, discussing it, presenting, debating, creating projects around it. That's when ideas and Abstract concepts really kick in, and really, and really, and people are really able to, to 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 see big gains in their understanding. And the other thing is peer to peer engagement. People really enjoy learning with others, and that's just been shown in all the studies to be the key thing. And so, what what we what we found in our research is that all too often, what happened with digital education was rather than building learning experiences around how people learn and around the technology and the way it would work best. It was almost analogous to you know filming a play and then say you made a movie. And the early movies were kind of like that, they would go and film a play essentially, and you could watch it in black and white in the theater, and it was a movie, but it wasn't a very good movie because it wasn't designed around the things that cameras and and and, and can do. So, I think that's in, in a way, in the same way, we're at that moment here where we've realized that you know we know that the best learning experiences do happen in person but that digital tools can enhance them and can make them more rewarding. And so, for example, a lot of our classes, you would record the lecture as a flip class or a recording and then use the class time, be it in person or on Zoom, to really debate, to do projects, to do interactions. And that's just been proven to be much more rewarding uh, for students. And I think that we're at a point now where universities are understanding this and students are also really appreciating the flexibility they had during the the pandemic to do some things online. So it's a, it's a moment of university to say, well, how can we deliver this richer learning experience that students want and that's better for them? But what does it take from us as administrators? How can we make this happen? How can we best support it? So DJ, if I could just to add to that a little bit from
1: my own class now, post COVID with all the help I've gotten from uh, Adam I have all my students watch a video case study before class. Then almost every class, I have a guest speaker who comes in from all over the world via Zoom. Then uh, we have a discussion about the case study that they watched. And then with the time left, I do a sort of a mini lecture. So every Every class has a lot of activity. We do some of the work before we get there. Uh, they have the case to illustrate how the, some of the theory that I'll talk about later comes. And and at least for me, and I think for them as well, uh, it's a much more exciting way to spend two hours than just listening to somebody talk at you.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, in your book, you talked about the leaders, in this uh, area, ASU, Western Governors, Southern New Hampshire, what were some of the things they had in common?
2: I'll I'll take that. I mean, those are, there are many leaders. And and, and I think the biggest message we wanted to share was, you know, that this work is hard. It's hard work. It requires changes, but it's certainly worth it. And so there's, we we really looked across the public sector, private sector, to try to find who's really doing this. And that was one of the exciting things about the book is rather than just only talk to, like CEOs about the big picture. We also talk to people in the quote-unquote engine rooms, people who are actually making websites, building experiences, and we're able to see a lot. And so there's great stuff happening across the spectrum from you know, smaller uh, schools uh, you know, in the Ivy League, for example, are often doing some very interesting things. But a lot of these big, what we call digital uh, public universities that really are committed to the idea of reaching a lot of students They've had a huge incentive to really invest in this and think through how do you film classes, how do you design it, and also how do you administer it. So ASU is an interesting example. They don't really make a distinction between an in-person and an online class, and so they digitally enhance all their classes, and then it makes it better if you're doing it in person or or on, online. And I think that I think is where we're going to go see more and more schools going where they're saying. And the other thing I'll say is there's a big equity play in this, that, that that if you're coming to one of our universities without a really strong background in certain things, and you get throw, thrown into a big entry-level class on biology, for example, uh, you need to pass that class if you want to go on and become a pre-med or a doctor. But if you don't have a, a strong background, it might be challenging. So for our universities to invest in digital tools, we're really also helping improved outcomes for a a, a lot of different students. Bill?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I, you know, again, one of the reasons why I'm so uh, proud of this book and, and so anxious to try to get people to look at it is it, it's a way to provide education to people who were denied it in the past. You know, the typical, uh high level university, but even almost any university would advertise about how many people they rejected. You know we take one out of twelve people who apply. I remember my first day in college the the um, uh, the chancellor got up and said, Everybody look to your left, look to your right. One of you won't make it through." So there was a, like almost an arrogance and pride about saying our whole purpose is to winnow the field. You know, only the strong survive. What a, te- what a terrible approach. So, you know, we're saying that it it doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. And I think you, you saw, you see from the book that, people like Berkeley, some of the highest, most competitive universities in the world, or some of the most difficult, like Georgia Tech, are are being able now to reach mass audiences, maybe through multiple steps, as Adam says. Maybe you don't dive right in. Maybe you take some courses through MOOCs or online or not for credit, and you build yourself up. So when you jump into the the master's degree, or even the the, the highly
0: uh, technical bachelor's degree, you can succeed. That is so great. And Now, in Chapter 3, you talked about the new Connected University, and you talk about cross-disciplinary studies. Uh, tell us more about those exciting opportunities.
2: Well, just, uh, uh, yeah, uh, basically, it's, it's, you know, the idea of, of studying across disciplines is, is is a thing that more and more universities are looking at. And it's connected to this question of how universities are going to, you know, what's our mission and should we really be addressing the big problems of society? Well, chances are the big problems of society aren't going to be only solved by economics or biology or, uh, you know, political uh, studies. They're going to be some combination, things like the environment, things like climate change or migration. These are all issues that cut across law and practice. So, We found that students, but it's hard to do that administratively at a university because there's a lot of focus on studying very uh, specific areas. So digital tools help in this a couple ways. One is by putting things online, you're sharing. So if a professor creates a digital case study or an online class, they're also connecting to people all around the world who are studying that issue. So there's a lot of great research that comes out of these online classes we do across multiple campuses where people who are studying a very specific area uh, are able to work together. So that's one way it really works. And the other way is by creating smaller, high-quality assets like the digital case studies, they can be looked at by a variety of issues. Uh, so we've had Bill and I have worked on cases that we are used at in a variety of schools and you know an issue, a case about, you know, uh, say surveillance and personal privacy and managing cities and policing has issues that are management issues. It has legal issues. It can be looked at from a lot of different angles. So those are some of the ways that, that we try to use the tools to make more cross-disciplinary learning happen. Bill?
1: And I also think you know we're moving to structures that enable us to do that as well. Where we work, uh, the School of International and Public Affairs, we have economists, sociologists, um, engineers, computer scientists, Um, we have medical people, lawyers. Um, So we are structured around one theme, how to make the world a better place. One of the the most expensive ventures in recent years at Columbia was to create a a building called the Mind-Brain Building, which is doing cutting edge research on the human brain. And in that building and among all the projects that they're working on are people from the same wide array of disciplines. Uh, So uh, I think we are doing better from a university perspective in bringing people together uh, from different disciplines to research complex problems. But now, as Adam said, we can share it. We can share what we've learned. We can share each other. Uh, again, as I say now, I'm, I'm able to bring in some of the best. Uh, one of my favorite guest lectures is is one of the prime, uh, most uh, renowned neurosurgeons in the world, Dr. Ganapathy, who works for uh, Apollo Hospitals in India. And we talk about telehealth in my class, and he zooms in <laughs> from all over the world, from all across the world. Uh, and and talks to my students about what they're doing at Apollo, what they're doing in India. That's easy now, and it's virtually free. So, I think this call, cross-disciplinary, cross-cultural, uh, and what brings it together are the the problems or issues or opportunities that we see in healthcare or housing or or um, inequality.
0: Absolutely. Now. I'm going to ask you about this. Did you find that colleges and universities, are they rewarding teaching for their tenure?
1: Uh, Let me take that first, maybe. So in our school, for example, there are three, uh, three legs of the school toward tenure. One is the traditional one that you would you would guess, which is research. And I think in practice, there's no question that still remains the primary um, step you have to take to get tenure. But at least on paper, and certainly in the discussion, I've been in tenure discussions, quite a few of them, teaching is the second leg, and service, public service, service to the university, service to students is the third. So I think we are slowly but surely step by step. And and again, all the controversy and discussions and everything else that happened during the pandemic, I see it every day. There is a new, uh, renewed, I saw this renewal. uh, I'm old enough to remember the late 60s and early 70s and how at least the world in the United States turned upside down and much progress was made. I think uh, in a different way, COVID has done the same thing to higher education. And I think there's a new commitment to have faculty not just do um, kind of long range research, but to work on research that will benefit society today and work on it with students, for students, and about students.
0: Media educators, you talked about this in your book. Do you see that we're going to start having more people who are involved with policies concerning digital education on campuses?
2: Well, I'll, I'll just you know one of the things we, we we tried to do this book was do a real management book for managing digital education because it's it was it's a more than a thirty billion dollar business. There are you know huge. Uh, groups involved, uh, both at universities. Some universities have 500, 600 people in their units that design and deliver digital education, uh, which is most people could never imagine that. Um, but that's what it takes in terms of filming and editing and delivering these classes. There are also private companies that support universities doing this that are often huge. Uh, one actually produced more videos in 2022 than Netflix did. So it's a huge industry but was little known and a lot of the challenges we think are our management uh, challenges because universities are set up really the structure of most universities is set up to deliver a very traditional learning experience in the classroom in person a lecture so that's kind of our biggest challenge is how can we uh help uh, more people understand how to use these tools and maybe make some adjustments in the structure of how people spend their time, if, you, if people are, if professors are going to be investing in creating uh, digital assets uh, over the summer, for example, so that a class in the following year could be richer, that's that's extra work that that they're not currently uh, you know compensated to do. So I think part of that work is to figure out how to compensate the various people, make these small adjustments, and uh, you know we see that the future is going to be. Uh, more and more work in this area. And, and, and it connects also to sharing and the mission of universities. If, if you know, I, I came from a background of making up documentary film and television for many years, and there was this movement to really start sharing things, universities, sharing classes. It's very exciting for someone like myself to be part of this and work mm-hmm. with people like Bill and, and Suleiman and say, okay, how can we as Columbia share widely and, what should we invest in so that people really can get a chance to benefit from the best uh, that we we can share? Um, and in fact, we've all we're launching two open MOOCs on edX uh, this week that go with our book that give uh, people around the world uh, the tools they would need at a smaller university, perhaps that doesn't have all the resources a, a larger one might have. How do you get started in this? How do you manage it? How do you? What are the moving parts? So we've shared those as open, free uh, educational resources. Bill. Yeah, and I I think, Deidre,
1: you've had a chance to take a look at the book. The great value I think it has is for people who want to do this. I mean, it really is. You know, I use my own. uh, I like to cook, and uh, the more I cook, the more really I rely on a book like The Joy of Cooking, which has how to make everything. I very seldom use it exactly word for word, but it gives me a good start. And I think what our book does is give someone who says, wow, you know, I want to do this too. It gives you a way to start. What do I need? How do I do it? And I think as, as both the book and the MOOCs that support it point out, it doesn't take a lot. It takes change. It takes modifications of the reward structure but the technologies, and Adam's a real expert here. But if you, and our, we give away our case studies. If you look at some of these case studies, they're really phenomenal, and some of them were done primarily with by students on location in Costa Rica using a uh, handheld tripod and an iPhone. And I challenge anybody to look at it and know that. they So the book enables you to use really accessible technology and the kind of step-by-step approach to, to really get high-quality results that are high-quality not just in terms of their artistic value, but in terms of their ability to really educate people.
0: Yes, and in Chapter 6 on page 155, you gave a step-by-step process of individual course design or redesign. And um, I just thought that was so important. Would you like to say anything about the course design or redesign steps?
2: Well, I'll take a a stab at this. I mean, this is, you know, one of the things where that's why it was so important for us to, we thought to talk to a lot of different sorts of people, because obviously you get better at things the more you do it. Right. So, so those universities that were doing this at scale, you know, after a while you figure out how does this work well and also what's the science behind it? So, and a lot of that knowledge has actually been in the hands of private groups that are working with universities, but it wasn't necessarily shared amongst us as much as it could have been. And so that's kind of one of the things we try to, 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 to say, well, what is, what's it typically if you have a course, you know, that's a successful course that you've been teaching for many years on campus, and you want to digitally enhance it. You want to be able to offer it online, and you also maybe want to offer it in a way that's delivered in person but with more uh, using these uh, these interesting, exciting tools. So the, there's a process. You would work with uh, people on a digital uh, education team to map it out, to plan it, to really go through and do this whole course redesign. So we sort of laid out the way you do it, and generally it's done based on a, a certain Principles, but how people learn. So that's the other thing that we that we share: the importance of really making sure you have uh, thought through and worked out your basic, you know, uh, the, the basic plan that you're going to bring towards your your learning. Are you really going to figure out how to make active learning happen? Are you going to include peer to peer engagement? So it's it is a process but it's something you can very much learn and you can follow and so we wanted to share as it were the recipe uh, as bill mentions uh, a joy of cooking you know how this is generally done by those people who are doing it well and at scale and
1: then you can you can customize it to fit your your environment the size how many people what's the subject matter where are you located uh what are your objectives um, General education is a big one, but there's also, you know, the, a lot of, the, most of the programs at, at ASU are very specific, but the methodology is quite similar.
0: Absolutely. Now, one interesting finding from your book was about video and time. What did you find out concerning what they're saying about the length of the video?
2: Well, this, this is again, where, where data is really important. So, so it, this, this a couple of studies done by some of these larger groups that work with many universities, and they're able to track, you know, peop, how long a student would spend on a video. And and you know, we all know that there's a generation uh, coming through universities now who've really grown up with YouTube. They've grown up with Instagram. They've grown up with lots of social media, and they're used to smaller uh, bits of video. And, and 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 frankly, it's just very important to work around. And acknowledge the, the reality we're living in today. So, generally, almost across the board, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of videos. At around seven or eight minutes, people stop watching that video. They, 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 they seven or eight minutes seems to be, for whatever reason, a good chunk of knowledge to deliver on a video. Uh, and so, we try to do that with our in our classes. We might take on what would be a ninety-minute experience in the classroom and say, well, let's. If we're going to put this online, we're not going to just record the whole 90-minute lecture. Why don't we think about turning this into six or seven or eight shorter videos that have the real, the core of the knowledge? And then let's also add to the the experience these other interactions that would happen normally in a classroom. So that's kind of the approach that we take. But it's very important to understand this limit, short, so less is more sometimes. And sometimes, I mean, Bill, you've been through the process a number of times. How does it, as a, as a teacher, how does it going to, from a bigger lecture to a smaller chunks. Is it, is it painful or is it helpful?
1: No, I think it's very helpful. I mean, a couple of, uh, comparisons, the, the story that's stuck with me, I had the pleasure to meet several times and talk with Ted Sorensen, who was the famous speechwriter for John F. Kennedy. And he told me the story about when he was writing for Kennedy's greatest speech, which was at the Berlin wall. And he gave his first draft to the president, and uh, president called him in, and you know he loved him, and he thought he was great. He said, "Ted, this is as always, it's great, but this is the most important speech of my life. You know, this is 20 minutes. It's got it's got to be an hour, an hour and a half." And, and Sorensen said to him, "Mr. President, beyond 20 minutes, take one minute away in impact for every minute you go beyond 20." So at the end of 40 minutes, your impact is zero. You keep going. You're going to be worse off than when you started. I never forgot that. And it sticks with me. The other thing that sticks with me is look at how Netflix has exploded. And so much of Netflix are what would be, you know, uh, the Godfather part one, part two, and part three broken into 30 minute segments. So, um, In many respects, less is more and breaking it into episodes, if you will, and then having either a discussion or uh, a a short paper that they submit or uh, uh, breakout rooms and have them come back. I think it works much, much better so that shorter is better.
0: In chapter seven, you talk about the blended learning toolkit Tell us more about the Open Society University Network and all of those resources.
2: Yeah, the, that that's so the Open Society University Network is a fantastic and very exciting uh, innovation uh, supported by the Open Society Foundation to basically help universities around the world uh, address issues around democracy, around uh, freedom in various uh, areas. And, and one of their, their challenges was how can you teach uh, Across huge geographies, so we we were very honored to be uh, invited to be part of uh, their efforts in the in 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 doing this, and and it was a fantastic uh, partnership uh, for us to have because Columbia also has global centers. We have uh, a global reach, and it, there, there's similar issues that we're also working with. How can we create a course that would work very well on multiple campuses? What do you do? What's really smart to do in person locally with a local instructor and what really where do you really get added learning by doing it on Zoom or in a big network class where you so for example we teach a class on visual storytelling for civic engagement and a lot of times we have students who are all making films about say gender issues right in different geographies in Kyrgyzstan and Bogota Colombia in a refugee camp in Kenya and so there's a real benefit to those students to meet peers around the world dealing with similar issues. So that's, that's one example. And then the blended learning toolkit is a free online MOOC class that we're we're releasing. uh, Like I said, this month, Uh, it's on edX platform. If you Google blended learning toolkit, it'll pop up. You could take it for free. You could download all the videos. And it's really our uh, effort to share some recipes from the cooking as it were to with people and saying hey uh, please download use these tools and the class itself is also going to have a series of discussions with teaching and learning professionals around the world there are people from more than 50 countries have already signed up and we're going to have a series of webinars and discussions with those people and say how what's going on at your university how do these ideas work for you and how can we help each other so that's what's going on on those two fronts.
0: In chapter nine, you talk about the network learning. Why is it important to make a class module? Bill, do you want to
2: take that, or?
1: Well, um, I I think for me anyway, um, the the module idea is is twofold. One is it deals with people's attention span. So again, the longer you get, the harder it is to hold people. The second is that. By doing modules, you create opportunities for people to work together. Now, again, so long in education, we've always said, do your own work, don't work together, don't share ideas. You know, you'll be penalized if we find out that you've been talking to each other about things. There, there is a place where everyone has to show they have a mastery of whatever the, the topic is, <laughs> whether it's filming or, or calculus, or um, uh, which chemicals can mix with others. But I firmly believe, and it's a a critical part of the book, and it's a critical part of the way I teach and the way we teach at Columbia, is that you want people to work together as teams to solve problems. That's why it happens in the real world, right? Um, You bring together people with different backgrounds from different places, and there is a ton of really top shelf academic research, which illustrates that diverse teams, both in terms of who the people are, where they come from, what they look like, and diverse backgrounds produce better results than teams that are not diverse. So the the whole idea of bringing people together frequently over different short segments uh, increases learning.
0: Now you talk about the future are you seeing that in the future colleges and universities will disappear or are you seeing there's going to be a major change
1: well again um, stories help me learn uh, I can remember it was about oh I don't know maybe pre-pandemic let's say six or eight years ago where you know the the common parlance among people from Silicon Valley some of the big I won't name, Any of the companies, but you know who I'm talking about, were were recruiting by saying, you don't need to go to college. Why would you go to college? Come work for us. We'll teach you how to code. We'll pay you a lot of money. You'll come to our campus. We'll give you free food, a hammock. uh, You can play badminton. um, And you'll make a ton of money. And what do you need college for? Of course, all those people got laid off, right? Uh, when the when the economy turned down. And now a lot of people who I respect say that most of the work that they were telling people don't go to college to, because you don't need that information, AI is going to be doing most of that coding. So uh, having a traditional, strong educational background, colleges are, and universities are not going away. As a matter of fact, God willing, they're going to become more pervert. Per- pervasive but they're going to become more available to more people and more different places and i think there'll be tiers of learning so that people will talk about degrees yes but they'll also t- talk about specializations and things like the blended toolkit i know how to do this or i know how to do that or i have a certificate in this or that i also have a degree so i l- i learned how to write I learned how to listen. I learned how to communicate. I learned how to work with others. So, no, I, they're not going away. They're going to get better and they're going to get more open
2: and they're going to be more dedicated to making the world a better place. Yeah, I, 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 I can't agree 100 more with what Bill laid out. And I'll just also say that, you know, artificial intelligence in a funny way is. I think going to reinforce the importance of universities, and that's why it's so important that we, as educators, engage with it. You know, the, the modular learning that Bill was talking about before is also a key part of it. By creating modular assets and small digital case studies or lectures that you could share, you allow people to mix and match and use these around the world. I mean, universities are very much dedicated to this idea of sharing knowledge by putting our knowledge out there in small, usable units. We're allowing different people from around the world to say, okay, I'm going to create a a class where I'm going to have this lecture from somebody in Berkeley for a while, and this uh, digital case study from somebody from University of uh, of, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and then this lecture or this TED Talk from somebody in uh, Kyrgyzstan. And uh, I'm going to connect it and wrap it up all together with local uh, things I'm going to add here myself. And I think that's where we're going to go. And Artificial intelligence is going to turbocharge that, but it needs informed, um, educated people to be leading this and guiding that. So, so I think uh, it's a very exciting moment we're, we're entering in and that's why we, we really wanted to get this book out there. One other
0: question. Do you see that maybe the 16 weeks will change to a three week, two week? What do you see in the future there?
1: Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question, and I, I, I wish I could give you a definitive answer. Um, yeah, wh- you know, if, if you really press people and say, where did the 12 weeks or the 13 weeks or the 14 weeks come from, most people would be very hard-pressed to really give a logic to it. And, you know, it's the calendar, it's summer breaks for agricultural purposes. There are a whole ream of, of things And the reality is that so many of us on earth are, you know, have that structure in our minds from the time we were kids and our parents have it and their grandparents. And so breaking through that structure, if you need to, I think will be challenging, but it's already happening. Um, People call it block courses, which can be, you know, two or three weeks, um, they talk about uh, or, or experience uh, even longer courses, like a one-year course. So I think there'll be more, and there already are, I think there'll be more different modalities. On the other side of it is I, my experience, having been in education for virtually my entire life, is that there is something that seems to work about that three-month kind of block to, which is broken up, by the way, right all the way down to seven-minute segments. Uh, it 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 can be a useful nugget of education. So, I think we'll we'll have more variety, but I also don't think that the semester, as it were. I guess one thing I would say that's changed is there has been an explosion in creating a third semester. That is a summer semester. We have that in the program that I run. So maybe three semesters rather than two, and then block courses and
2: short courses interspersed. What do you think, Adam? Well, I think it's just, there are a lot of different types of learners out there. You know, There are huge problems facing the world, and we need everybody. We need to really get be able to figure out how to train all kinds of people. So if you're a working person who is running, let's say, an NGO, in some part of the world, a non-governmental organization in somewhere like South Africa, you probably need a, a bunch of things that would really help you do your job better. But chances are you have the bandwidth to do it in a three or four week mini course. Uh, and that's also true if you're you know, anybody looking to, to reskill and maybe enter a new area of work uh, mm-hmm. mid-career. So those sorts of people need shorter, modular bits of assets, but it is very special. I have two daughters who are off in university right now, and they're loving having a chance to engage for three months and really dive into an issue and create that community of other of, of friends yeah, and scholars.
0: That's, that's
1: true. You know? Yeah, that's
2: a really important point, Adam. That, that
1: gives you enough time to really get to know your colleagues,
2: which it is really... Is- it's a big part. It's a big part of it. I mean, I, I, I'm still great friends with all kinds of friends from my time at college. I think we all, we all, all that's a common experience. So, I think it, it depends, and I think that's what we need to think about: is how can we invest in really uh, making sure that we create digital assets to improve learning on campus that we could also share. Can we share it without? big costs. And is that part of our mission as a university? Uh, I think the answer is yes. And that's what we're trying to figure out. What's the, what's the magic balance? What's the secret sauce of, 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 of making all this happen in a way that you can, you know, reach different learners where there are. I was just going to say that
1: as Adam was talking about the more, uh, maybe older learners or, or non-degree learners, uh, my center also runs executive education programs, and those can be as short as three days or as long as a year. So when we're talking about a very um, uh, mature audience, an audience that's already has a job and is looking to just enhance their skills, we can get to much shorter packets. But again, I think the idea of having cohorts who take the, the program together, um, that can be very valuable uh, in terms of reinforcing learning, but also in terms of building lifelong networks of people that you you know and stay in touch with and are both friends and and teachers of each other uh, for the long
0: run. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you're going to be working on
2: Adam. Well, uh, right now, we're, we're, we're very focused on uh, sharing, you know, uh, a lot of the research and the work that we've done. We're, we're so thrilled to be launching these two MOOCs. Uh, and I think that we're gearing up for some some new projects that are very exciting that have, really have to do with artificial intelligence and the question of if artificial intelligence is used with guidance from university professors, and if we want to think about how to create experiences where we can leverage what's good about it and avoid what's not so good about it. Could we, what can we do? How can we help people? And I think we, we think it's going to allow adaptive learning to happen. Adaptive learning is kind of the Holy grail of digital education that people have been talking about for 30 years. And it's the core idea that you could reach somebody and they could get experiences that really match what they need. And I think that we might, we might be a lot closer to that than we, than we, than we think. And so that's kind of where a lot of our efforts are going to be going over the next year is saying, how can we uh, use AI and uh, to build experiences that really match what people need when they need it? I couldn't agree more. Uh, and, we're, and
1: we're just starting this research with AI, but a couple again, to I think we can learn a lot from history. When Google came along, uh, academia and many people were wringing their hands. No one will do research. No one will read books. Everybody's going to steal ideas. And in fact, Google now, I mean, most of us couldn't live without it. I think AI is going to become, you know, the, the supercharged Google. And we had a faculty meeting just yesterday. And, you know, I think it's a real simple way to deal with it. First of all, integrity and ethics have to be taught and people have to know that but just like every other academic practice or every other research practice or every other law that's designed to protect intellectual property, if you use AI tools, you need to cite them. And if you take things out of an AI uh, supplied packet, you have to put quotes around it. I mean, I, I think it's I agree with Adam, I think it's gonna it's gonna change the world for the better as long as we are careful about making sure that people have the same ethics and values that they should have already so that's that's my thought.
0: Well, we'll be looking forward to reading hearing more about those projects in the near future. Again, we've been talking with the authors of leveling the learning curve. Creating a More Inclusive and Connected University. Thank you very much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Deidre. It was a real pleasure.